When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Everybody's worst fear when you go after a dream, when you're out of your comfort zone, is that you're going to embarrass yourself. You're going to somehow be humiliated because you're going to fail. I mean, it, there's that little devil on your shoulder that's probably telling you, oh, this can't work out. You know, you don't have any right to do this. That fear factor is the kind of thing that you are always saying to yourself, but you have to push it out of your head. You know, it's like the, the good devil and the bad devil, and you, you have to be able to out-shout the, the bad devil. So that, to me, was the, was the big issue. There's a difference between a dream chaser and a dream catcher. Thanks all for tuning in to Dream Catchers, where we make things happen. Dream Catchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dreams. Are you ready? Hey, everybody, welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I am so excited that you guys have come in and decided to hang out with me today. Today, I have the great fortune of having Robert Miller with me today. Robert, how are things in your neck of the woods? Absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Jerome. For sure, man. And so we got connected through somebody who's amazing. Do you remember who that was? I think it was Adam. Adam. Adam's always putting great people together. I, he's my pod pal. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's my pod pal too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. awesome. So man, just grateful to have you here. And so do me a favor before we jump in, let the listeners know how they can get in contact with you. Oh, that's interesting, because usually that's the end of the whole thing. So I like it up in the beginning. Well, there's two ways to get in touch with me. I got two websites that I'm going to mention. One is my music, because I'm a musician first and foremost, and that's projectgrandslam.com. And I'm also a podcaster now, and my podcast is called Follow Your Dream. So you can reach me at follow Robert at followyourdreampodcast.com and the podcast email is followyourdream 
Com. Wow. 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 So we got fellow dreamers in the building today. That's so Robert, right. I mean, you know, we run this whole podcast around the red pill framework, which are, is our model for a centered life. And the first level of the red pill is self image. So talk to me a little bit about you growing up, kind of your, your corporate career, and then you leaving and starting to chase your dreams. I grew up in uh, New York City in the suburbs, Queens, New York, real middle-class kind of lifestyle. My father was a musician, and that got me into being a musician because he told me later that he named me Robert Miller because he thought that that was a good name for a band leader. So I think I was programmed from birth to be a musician. And he played trumpet, did it you know, kind of as a sideline because he had to work to make a living. So he played weddings and bar mitzvahs and private parties and stuff like that on the weekends. And I was told right from the get-go, you're going to be a musician. You got to learn an instrument. My parents started me on the piano when I was about, I don't know, six or seven years old. And I hated it because who wants to practice when you're six or seven years old? And I said to my parents after about six months, please let me do something else. I can't stand this. And they said to me, all right, look, you can stop the piano, but you got to play something else. That was the deal. So I said, okay, I'll take up trumpet because that was my father's instrument. So I played the trumpet and I played the trumpet in school, you know, from junior high school right through high school. That was kind of my focus. I played sports. I did all the other stuff that kids do as well. But, you know, music was always front and center. And then, you know, my world changed and it, the same thing happened for millions of kids around the world. When this little band from Liverpool, England came out in 1964, and we're talking, of course, the Beatles, they went on Ed Sullivan, and everybody in the entire world watched that, and everybody's life that I knew changed at that moment. And for me, it was very simple. I mean, trumpet was no longer very cool. Everybody had to have a guitar. So I went out, I bought myself a cheap little guitar. And we kind of knew that the Beatles were playing electric guitars. That was kind of awesome. But we didn't have money for an electric guitar. So we all had these little reel-to-reel tape recorders with microphones. And I literally scotch-taped the microphone onto the guitar body. So now I had an electric guitar. And that was kind of my my formative years in the music business, so to speak. I taught myself the bass because... I learned the treble cleft from the trumpet. All my buddies that were trying to learn the guitar, they were struggling just to learn anything. And I said, okay, I'll volunteer to play the bass because I can figure out the bass cleft. And that's how I became a bass player. And from there, it was, you know, one band after another in high school. And then we can, we can go on from there. But that, those were my formative years. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, you had clarity on what you wanted to do, which was music, but you moved around to different instruments. So are you able to play multiple instruments today or is it just the bass? Well, in, in some respects, I mean, I'm not an accomplished player on any other instrument. I play the bass. That's my main instrument, but I fiddle around on the guitar on the piano, uh, on the bongos. I mean, you pr- pretty much have to learn how to play everything if you're going to be a musician. Okay, perfect. And so you leave the formative years. You, do you go to college? What happens after that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to uh, I went to college in Boston. Got this hat on BU. That was my school. Started in BU in 1968. 
And it was a very interesting time to be in college in Boston because Boston had such a vibrant college scene, a vibrant music scene. It was terrific. I actually left and took a, a, a leave of absence from school for a semester because I really wanted to make it in the music business. This was around 1969, 1970. I'm back in New York City playing music full time as much as I can. And one of the lucky things that happened to me in life occurred right then and there. I took a music course in one of the colleges in New York. And as part of the music course, they set me up with a teacher, a private teacher. Who did they set me up with on the bass? A guy named Jimmy Garrison, who happened to be John Coltrane's bass player. I mean, talk about remarkable coincidences or things in life. And you know, up until then, I just played rock and roll. You know, this was the British Invasion time. This was the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, the Kinks, all those groups. I love them. And all of a sudden, I get introduced to jazz by Jimmy Garrison. And I played with him, studied with him for about six months. And then I went back to Boston and he set me up with all the jazz cats that were playing in Boston. And at that time, this is now, you know, I'll call it the early 1970s. What was the music that was happening? Well, for me, what was happening was jazz fusion. This is when Miles Davis went electric, when Chick Corea was out there playing his stuff when weather report was playing these were all bands that i adored and i started to play all that kind of music in the boston scene all the different clubs all the different venues that you could go to in boston and that was again that's what i thought i was going to do with my life but it didn't work out that way oh here comes the plot twist ladies and gentlemen <laughs> so what happened talk to me don't leave well, the cliffhanger you know, look, I was a broadcasting and film major in college. I wasn't a music major. I was in this communication school. And I said to myself, my perfect life was going to be to have a day job in broadcasting and to play music at night. I thought that was just awesome to do. The only problem was the only job I could get in broadcasting when I graduated, nobody cared that I had a degree in broadcasting. I mean, no one cared. The only way I could get in, I, and I was lucky to do it, I, I started to work at WGBH, which is the public television station in Boston. But the only way that a guy could get into that station at that time was through the mailroom. Girls got in by being secretaries. Guys got in through the mailroom. And the deal was that, you know, you were supposed to work in the mailroom for a month or two, and then you could go up into the station. You could find a job in, in production, you know, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to produce shows you know, on television. Well, it didn't work out that way. The country was in kind of a, a down period at that time. And my one month in the mailroom turned into two, into three, into six. I was in the mailroom for over a year. Okay. So I'm in the mailroom. I'm miserable playing music at night between the two jobs. If I made a hundred bucks a week, it was an awful lot of money. Oh, and boy. I said to myself, wait a minute, this can't go on. I mean, I got to do something else. And a friend of mine who happened to be in law school at the time, he said to me, well, why don't you go to law school? And I said, what? Why? Why would I do that? I had never even considered that. He said, well, very simple. You could do law during the day and you could play your music at night. And I was playing with a guy who was the leader of the band I was playing with in Boston. He was a medical doctor and he did his medicine during the day and he played jazz with me at night. I said, okay, well, if he can do it, I can do it too. I wasn't going to be a doctor. 
I get nauseous and sad from looking at blood and stuff. But I said, okay, maybe I could be a, a lawyer. And that's what happened. I, I decided that I was going to be a lawyer. And I would do the law during the day and I'd do the music at night. And it went in that direction. And it was the biggest mistake that I ever could have made from a musical standpoint. Why? Because, you know, anybody that knows lawyers or is a lawyer knows that, you know, you got it's 23 hours a day. I mean, you're <laughs> barely sleeping for an hour or so. And I stopped playing music, Jerome, for 15 years. Yeah, you put that dream on the shelf, baby. That's what happens because oh, you want to make that money. But you were making plenty of money. It was $100 a week. I was making anymore, enough. I was making enough. But the problem was that I had no time. And then I got married. I had kids. I had a job. I had obligations. You know, it's this life got in the way. And that's Robert, what happens that's to American so many people. Dream. It's the American <laughs> dream. What are you talking about? Come on. It's the American dream. Yeah, but it wasn't my dream. That's the problem, Jerome. I mean, I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be out there doing what all these bands that I loved and all these musicians that I love was doing. And it just didn't happen. And I kept saying, wait a minute, why did this occur? How did it fly out the window? How did my dream get lost? And I said, I kept saying to myself throughout those 15 years, it was like wandering in the desert. Okay. It was like the Israelites wandering in the desert, you know, centuries ago. And I kept saying, I, I got to find a way to get back. I, I, I have to. But it just kept going on and on and on. And so this is what typically happens. There's somebody who shows up to help you find your way. So who showed up to help you find your way out of the desert? Well, you know, it's interesting. It didn't happen at once. It happened in phases. Phase one was, and I'm living in New York City at the time, I found this musician's dating service. Okay, that's what I call it, meaning this was a, an outfit that if you wanted to play music, all amateur musicians, you went down there and you said, I want to play Led Zeppelin, uh, third album, second side. I'm talking old days when there were albums, you know, that went around on a turntable and they had an A side and a B side. But if, if you said I wanted to play whatever, Led Zeppelin or whoever, they would find like three other idiots that wanted to play that music too. And they'd set you up and we'd be in a studio and we'd be playing. And that's how I got back into playing music. And it was really jazz that I was playing at that time. But, you know, I had to get my chops back. I hadn't played in 15 years. Everything rusted. Everything went away. And so I had to get back into it. And that helped me get back into it. So for about six months, that's what I did. I was playing with different people playing different kinds of music, and doing it in a group context. And then the second lucky thing that happened was I ran into a friend of mine from my old neighborhood who, it turns out, owned a recording studio. And not just a recording studio, but a really well-known, well-regarded recording studio in New York City. And he said to me, why don't you come down and, and record an album? And I said, oh, oh, my God, I don't know if I'm ready to record an album. I, I, I mean, I, I hadn't written anything in years. He said, don't worry, we'll take care of you. And so I went down, we recorded an album, and, and I brought in a couple of guys that I had played with previously, and he brought in some guys, fabulous musicians. I mean, top, top guys. And I'm recording my first album, I'm scared to death, okay? It's a very intimidating process. But you know what? It worked out okay. We called the album Child's Play because that was a song that I had written. 
And the first song that I ever wrote was on that album. It was called Cakewalk for Deborah. Deborah was my girlfriend in college. She had become my wife. And we played that song amongst other things. And then I was able to sell that album to a, uh, a record label. So they put it out and you know what? It got some decent reviews and it started to make me feel really good that, oh my God, I wasn't wasting my time. And then I took some of the guys from the album and I put together a band. And I had a very creative name for the band, the Robert Miller Group. <laughs> and we started to play, you know, some of the clubs in New York City. And we started to play some of the festivals that we were able to get into. And it was great. It was like, well, I'm on the dream path again. But it was all kind of a hobby. It was all kind of, you know, a part-time thing. It wasn't really what I had in mind. Because I still had a job, I still had obligations, I still had a family. So I was on the path, but I wasn't there yet. Whoa. Well, you said a lot there, right? How do you <laughs> so what's going on with the law career at this time? You still going to work every day? You Yeah, still going to work fence? every day, you know, and trying to keep that in one compartment and keep my music in another compartment. But I always knew what I wanted to do. You know, when you have a dream there's a burning in your gut. I, I believe very much that your gut tells, you think with your gut. Your gut tells you so much. You know when something is right for you. You know when something isn't right for you. And for me, what the signal, the message that was coming into my gut was, this is what you always wanted. This was your dream. You got to figure out a way to go for that dream and go for it. And then in, in the midst of all of that, a, one big event occurred in my life. And that is I got hit by a car while I was riding my bicycle in New York City and I broke my neck. And there's nothing like a near death experience to put you back on a dream track. Because if you have any brains at all, you're going to say to yourself, the big guy upstairs must have had some other direction for me. And I, that was my big wake up call. I said, okay. I survived this. I'm still in one piece. I'm still able to play. I'm still able to do everything, but it could have gone the other way. I mean, my neck exploded when I got hit by that car and Jerome, none of the shrapnel touched my spinal cord. So imagine that. I mean, just how lucky that was. And really that's, I consider it to be just phenomenal luck. I could have ended up like people like Christopher Reeve, you know, and God, but it didn't work out that way for me. So I said, I must have another purpose. There must be something else here for me to do. And that was what really put me on that dream track. But you know what? It still took me 20 years to get to the point that I'm at now. Man, and so we call that the red pill moment over here, Robert. <laughs> that is the red pill moment. That's when you realize that you have to make that hard right and go do the thing. So did you walk away from the law practice or how did you make your transition? I decided when I turned 60, okay, you know, they say 60 is the new 40 and all of that stuff. And I, I feel vibrant and alive and all of that. But, you know, when you turn 60, you know that you're on the far side of the mountain. I mean, I said to myself, all right, how many more chances do I have? I don't want to regret for the rest of my life that I never took the shot. And I said to myself, if I'm going to take the shot, I got to do it and I got to do it 110%. So I gave everything else up and I said, I'm going to dive into the deep end of the pool and it's either going to work or it's not going to work. 
But I knew that for me, and I think for almost everybody, it's not the success or the failure. It's trying, okay? If you got a dream inside of you and you've never done it, you don't want to regret that for the rest of your life. You want to give it a shot. And if you make it, great. If you don't, at least you tried. And that's the way I felt at that time. Love it. So what were some of the challenges that you faced once you made that decision to go follow your dream? <laughs> I I faced a million challenges. First of all, I'm 60 years old, okay? Everybody else in the music business is 20 years old. I decided that what I needed to do was to surround myself with young, vibrant, extraordinarily talented musicians. And I'm fortunate that I live in New York City, and it's a mecca for musicians to come to that are just fantastic from all different places. And that's what I did. The first thing I, I, I was able to do was to, to put together a new group of musicians. And they were all wonderfully talented and almost all from different countries. That was another interesting thing. A lot of them had Latin backgrounds. And that pushed me into writing music that was not only rock and jazz oriented, because those were my two big genre backgrounds, but Latin as well. And part of that was because of my background. Again, going back to my father, my father loved Latin music and used to have Latin, all the Spanish stations in New York City on the radio when we used to go anywhere in the car. And I would listen to that stuff and it, it was in me. I just hadn't played it really. So once I had these new folks in the band and, you know, they came from Mexico, Venezuela, from Puerto Rico, they had that Latin thing going. I wanted to infuse that into my music as well. And I had to start writing again. I had had a writer's block in music for, I don't know, dozens of years. But once I put the band together, I knew I wanted to write and I knew I wanted to craft this band the way I wanted it and the music the way I wanted it, and I started to write again. And my writing just blossomed. It just came out of me. It flowed out. And the next thing that happened was my wife said to me, you know, I was writing basically instrumental music. And I have nothing against instrumental music, but my wife said to me, you know, people really like vocals. Most people really like vocals. And I thought about it. I said, you know, you're right. And so I started to write more and more vocal music, and I brought in singers to be my lead singer. And some of them were just, they were all extraordinary, not some of them. And then I started, you know, you start to play music. You've got a group, you're writing music, you're trying to express yourself in your own way. I'm in New York City. It's a very crowded market, of course. How do you get started? How do you get the ball rolling? Well, we started taking gigs. And, you know, the early gigs, it was like the band and the bartender and the waitress. Okay. <laughs> we didn't have a fan base at that time. And you got to be willing to deal with that. I mean, you know, talk about success and failure. You feel like a total failure when you've basically got a rehearsal going in a bar because there's nobody there. And what you find, what I found and every dream, it's, it's not a straight path to success. We didn't have that. I didn't have that. It's one step forward. It's two steps back. It's three steps sideways. The goal was always just keep moving forward, even if it was, you know, up and down and, and sideways. And that's what happened for us. We kept moving forward and slowly but surely we got better gigs. We got bigger gigs. We started to play openers for some major artists. I mean, we've opened for folks like Edgar Winter, Blues Traveler, Boney James, Mindy Abair. 
Uh, we even did an after show for Yes. And, you know, when you do an opener as an artist, what are you doing? You're basically playing before an audience that doesn't even know that you're going to be there. They're not your audience. They're the headliner's audience. And you got about 30, 40 minutes to try and win them over. And, you know, that was the most satisfying thing to me because every time we opened for somebody else, at the end of that 40 minutes or so, we got a standing ovation. So I knew that we were on the right path. Again, onward and upward. And then we started to play festivals. And we played festivals in the U.S. And then we played festivals overseas. And I had a, an aha moment, Jerome, if I can tell you about it. Absolutely. We, we got offered to play a festival in Serbia. Serbia is in Eastern Europe, for all of you that haven't memorized all your maps of Europe. It's right next to Bulgaria. Okay. This is part of the old Yugoslavia. And they have a jazz festival there every year called the Nisville Jazz Festival. It's a fantastic festival. And it's located inside of a castle a castle that's like a thousand years old. You go in, you know, you go in on a roadway over the moat, you go into the castle. They have a couple of different stages side by side. One band is playing while the other band is setting up. And we were playing in 2018 before 20,000 people, 20,000 people that mainly didn't speak English and certainly didn't know who we were. But at the end of our one hour set, again, we got this great standing ovation. We come off the stage. There's a whole line of people waiting to get our autograph and to take pictures with us. It was just a fantastic experience. That was the moment that I said, okay, I've made it. I've accomplished my dream. And we actually took the music from that experience, which was recorded, and turned it into an album of ours called Greetings from Serbia. And that album, like all of our albums, has gotten some terrific reviews. What's up, tribe? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know that we put together a free 15-point checklist for exiting the matrix. Jump on over to dreamshouldbereal.com in order to pick your free copy up. Let's get back to the show. Wow. Talk about a wild ride. So did you leave law behind completely after the accident? Oh yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I knew when I went into, when I decided to jump into the pool, into the deep end, I knew that I had to leave everything else that I was doing behind. I didn't want to do it half-assed. I wanted to do it 110%. And I figured, look, as I said to you earlier, the goal was to try. The goal was to do it. The goal was to not ever regret that I hadn't tried it. The fact that it's worked out so well. I mean, everything I've just described to you has worked out in five years. In five years time, I got 10 albums, including a billboard number one. I've got over 4 million video views. I've got over a million Spotify streams, got over 50,000 Facebook fans. We've played all these festivals and concerts and we've opened for all these people. This is five years. I mean, people spend, you know, their, their life doing this stuff. It's just worked out and it's been so satisfying. That's outstanding. So, all right. What was your worst fear in the process? Right. Cause you, you did a pivot. I mean, total about face. And went back to the thing that you knew deep down in your soul you should be doing the whole time. It's true. My worst fear and everybody's worst fear when you go after a dream, when you're out of your comfort zone, is that you're going to embarrass yourself. You're going to somehow be humiliated because you're going to fail. I mean, there's that little devil on your shoulder 
that's probably telling you, oh, this can't work out. You know, you don't have any right to do this. That fear factor is the kind of thing that you are always saying to yourself, but you have to push it out of your head. You know, it's like the, the good devil and the bad devil, and you, you have to be able to out shout the, the bad devil. So that to me was the, was the big issue. Was I going to be able to continue doing this even if people didn't like it? And you know, I've been very fortunate. The reviews that we've had for everything that we've done has been, have been just fantastic. So encouraging. And I now have a whole set of reviewers that, you know, every time we put out an album, the same people tend to review the albums. So they know my body of work. They know who I am. They know what the band is all about. These are people that know my music intimately. And if they ever say to me, you know, this one didn't work or you're going in the wrong direction, I would listen to them because I trust their judgment. But that hasn't happened yet. Wow. Okay. So. You were scared you're going to embarrass yourself. That was your fear. How did you overcome that? Because that's paralyzing for most people. Oh, it's totally paralyzing. I mean, again, I had this dream burning inside of me, and it was there for decades. I mean, this wasn't a dream that was just there from a week ago. I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I had missed the boat. All of my contemporaries had done what I was doing, but they did it decades earlier. And I said, I'm going to give it a shot. And it it was paralyzing, like you said, but I said, I'm going to give it a, I'm just going to try. And and I realized also that I had a story that was completely unique and different from everybody else. Because, I mean, who goes into music full time initially when you're in your 60s? I mean, everybody's doing it when they're in their 20s. That's the music business. And I realized after I had established my credibility with the things that I've just mentioned, that I had a story and I had something that perhaps would be inspirational to others because everybody's got a dream and the dreams come in all different shapes and sizes. Mine happened to be music, but you know, it could be, I want to learn a new hobby. I I want to learn a new skill. I want to open up a business. I always wanted a different career. I mean, there's a million different dreams out there and people needed, I think, need to find inspiration and motivation in order to go after them because there's that internal blockage that we all have. If I do it, maybe I'm going to fail. I don't have the time to do it. I, I, I'm doing so many other things. I got so many things going on in my life. There's always excuses why people don't go after the dreams. And I said to myself, okay, this worked out for me. How can I use this as a means to motivate and encourage others? And that's why I started the podcast. Beautiful. So <laughs> was there a point when everything was on the line? Every day it's on the line. Ooh, talk Every about that. Every day it's on the line. You know, I just recorded a new album and it's going to be released shortly. It's called Miller Rocks. Why? Because I started off, as I said, playing rock and roll. And I migrated to jazz, and then I kind of combined jazz and rock together and Latin, but I wanted to do something that kind of went back to my rock roots. So I did an album during the pandemic. This is my second album during the pandemic. First one was called Summer of Love 2020, which I wrote all the songs in the depths of the pandemic. When we had no cloud with a silver lining, there was no vaccine, there was nothing. People were dying. People were housed in their, you know, their, their offices, their homes. They couldn't go anywhere. And I started to write music, which is what I do. 
And I, there were two themes that came out. One was the pandemic and how did it affect me and how did it affect everybody else? And the other was my feeling that there was one emotion that was going to get us through the pandemic over all the others. And that was love. So my songs were about the pandemic and about love. And they, they turned into this album, Summer of Love 2020, which I released in January of this year. And it got fabulous reviews. And the difference in this album is that it was all recorded remotely. I couldn't bring my band into a rehearsal studio. We couldn't go into a recording studio together. We started to record remotely, which is, for me, just a completely different way of doing things. And the second thing about it was because the songs were so personal, I decided I needed to sing all of the songs. And talk about scared. I mean, I had always been a background singer, a harmony singer. I always had fabulous lead singers, all women on in my band. I said, well, this time around, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to sing the songs on this album because they were so personal. And you know what? When the reviews all came out, everybody loved the album. And that gave me the motivation to try it again with this second album that I've mentioned that's going to be coming out soon, Miller Rocks. I sing all the songs on this album as well. Now, at some point, I might have some people say, what the hell are you doing this for? you got great lead singers. But I said, you know what? This is part of my journey. I needed to do it. And if people like it, great. I can have this as kind of a, you know, a parallel path to the band because at some point the band's going to be able to play together again. We've got finally our first post COVID gig lined up. We're playing a festival in Pennsylvania called Music Fest in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania on June 27th. Bless them that, you know, that they're going forward with this festival somehow social distanced and all of that, but we're going to play together at that festival. And then I got some other things that hopefully will come together over the summer if the world works out the way we like it. But my feeling was, let me go down two parallel paths. I got the band and my lead singer, and I got this kind of solo effort from me. And let's see how, see how it works out. Talk about terrified. You know, that you, I, I feel that so many things in life are such that you just have to get over your fear. You know, I wrote a book in connection with this podcast. I started the podcast. I didn't know anything about a podcast. You've been doing it forever. Others have been doing it forever. I had never even listened to a podcast. But I said to myself, you know what? A podcast is going to give me a relationship with the audience that's very different from my music relationship. Because, you know, a podcast is 30, 40 minutes long. They can find out more about me. It's not just listening to the music. And oh, by the way, not only do I want to encourage people to follow their dream, but I wanted to infuse my podcast with my music because my music is the manifestation of my dream. So every episode of my podcast starts off with another one of my songs that's played underneath the introduction. I talk about it. I, I tell you why I chose that song. It's all related to my guest or the subject of that episode. And then at the end of the episode, I play the song again. And I make each song, each episode available for free download for anybody that wants it. Wow. So that's, that's how generous. I kind of mix my music into the podcast. 
For sure. Okay. So, you know, that's kind of the career piece of the episode. So let's move into health. What have you done? Because I imagine you probably had to get pretty rigorous with your routine following the accident with the car. Are you doing anything to stay pretty sharp mentally or put your body in peak condition? Because I mean, singing, you got to have some some breath. (laughs) Well, that's true. Uh, Look, I've always been active from an aerobic point of view. I used to run don't do the, I don't do the running thing anymore, but I love to do walks and hikes. And I play a lot of tennis also because that's a great aerobic exercise. So I keep myself in pretty good shape and I've always tried to do that. I also, I meditate every day, which I think is really important. Meditation, I've been doing that for decades. Transcendental meditation taught by the Maharishi. Okay. But it's a wonderful way. I get up in the morning, spend 10 minutes doing meditation and breath work also. If your audience is not familiar with this, I mean, breath work is another way of cleansing yourself and calming yourself at the same time. It kind of gets you ready for the day. So between the meditation and the breath work and the aerobic stuff, that's how I keep myself going. And on top of that, I've been married to the same wonderful lady for 45 years. I've got two children and four grandchildren. They keep me going. There's nothing like grandchildren because, you know, as everybody will tell you, when you get to that stage of life, you love them to death and then you give them back. (laughs) (laughs) The benefit of them not being yours. That's right. (laughs) Okay. So now let's move into... The prosperity, but I'm going to jump down to the bottom of that section. And let's talk about something trying to pull you back into the old world. So you're out here, you're living the dream as a musician. Did anybody reach out and say, hey, Robert, we really need you to come back and practice law? Or won't you pick up this case on the side? It's only one small thing. The answer to that is no, because they everybody knew that I gave it up. But because I have a background and I have experience, one of the things that I like to do is help mainly musicians, but friends and others, when they got a problem, they come to me. And, you know, I've got a long history and I, 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 I have legal thinking capability. So people will come to me all the time and say, you know, Robert, I got this problem. I got that problem. Can you help me? And they're usually modest problems. It's a lease. It's an argument with somebody. So I've done that for years. I've also donated my time pro bono, as we say, for free to several different organizations that provide legal services to third parties, whether they're in the arts or not. So that's my kind, that's my way of kind of giving back and also just keeping a little bit into it because you're talking about right side brain and left side brain. And I forget which one is which, but you know, when you're doing law, or business, you're working that one side of your brain. It's the rational side of your brain. When I'm doing music or the podcast or any of this other stuff, I'm working the other side of the brain. So in order for me to stay in balance, I'd like to keep both sides of the brain going. Absolutely. Balance. Balance. That's an interesting word there. So let's talk a little bit about significance. When you think about your life over the past five years or so, and you think about the previous 20, what's your what's the biggest difference in your approach? I think that the difference for me is that there's a joyfulness and a happiness and a satisfaction level that I have now since I went for it five plus years ago, 
that freed me from the day-to-day stuff that we all go through. I mean, I was a working stiff, just like everybody else. I had my job. I had my routine. I had my obligations. And not that it was bad, not that I had a bad life. I didn't. I had a very nice life. But I wasn't following that dream path that, to me, was what was burning inside of me. So that was the big difference is when I get, when I gave up that routine stuff and went on to the dream side of things, there was a lightness, a happiness, an inner satisfaction that came out for me that was not there nearly the same way before. Ooh, satisfaction. I think everybody's chasing that. I, I think more money or more things is going to get it for them. But uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't work. <laughs> Listen, you're 100% right. At the end of the day, it's not about how many toys you have, how many possessions you have. Look, you, you got to have some stability and, and money in your life. I totally understand that. And there are going to be people that say, okay, what he did was completely unrealistic for me. I can't give everything else up and just jump into something. But you don't have to. And again, dreams come in all different shapes and sizes. There are many dreams you can do while you're doing the rest of your life. So, you know, my message now is to encourage people to go after that dream. Got to chase it. Then you got to catch it. So, Robert, we're down to the final four, man. The first one is, what are you most grateful for? I'm grateful for being alive, number one, because it could have worked out just the opposite. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for the opportunity that I have to do what I always wanted to do. And I think you may have already answered this question, but I'll ask anyway. What dream are you most focused on catching next? Well, I started this podcast thing. And I, I I don't do things halfway. I decided that the podcast was going to be kind of the flip side of my music. Okay, they're both creative. I infuse, as I said, my music into the podcast. So I want to make my podcast as successful as possible. Success, again, is how many people can I influence in a positive way? Can I make a difference with this podcast? And so my dream at the moment is oriented towards the podcast, while at the same time, you know, I got the music thing going, which I'm not giving up on in any way, shape or form. And I want to combine them and I want to make them all work in a synergistic fashion. Got it. Love it. Clarity. And it's all feeding each other, which most people go do this thing off on one foot and then they go over here and they wonder why nothing's moving. But you've got kind of singular focus moving there. I try to keep it that way, and hopefully it'll stay on that line. Simplicity. I love it. What gift are you giving the world? (laughs) I don't know if I'm giving any gift, but I'm, I'm giving myself in the sense that I have a story, and I believe that my story can help motivate other people to find and succeed at their story. We all have a story. Robert, I I find you a breath of fresh air, my brother. I think (laughs) that a lot of people are just stuck in the rut and they feel like I'm too old or I'm past the point where I can experiment or all these people are counting on me. So I can't do the thing that's been placed on my heart. They put the dream on the shelf and they say, oh, that ship has sailed or the tide's back out. And you said, no, I've got one life. This could have been very different. I've got a second chance and I'm going to take full advantage of that and actually show that the time that I've been given here was a good decision. And 
then spinning that and then going out into the world and being the light and inspiring people to follow their dreams. And hopefully in the end, they end up catching them. It is extremely exciting for me. So super grateful for Adam putting us together. And I'm extremely grateful for you being so generous with your time. Got one final question for you. What's the one takeaway you want the listeners to have from this conversation? I would say it's pretty much what you just said, that everybody's got a dream. You may not be in touch with it anymore, but it's there. And you're going to know it because you're going to feel it inside your gut, something you always wanted to do. Everybody's got something like that. And I am living proof that you're never too old and it's never too late to go after that dream. Love it. Listeners, you heard it from Robert himself. You're never too old and you're never too late. You've got to take action. You got to go catch your dreams. And until the next time, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.